I'm Captain Kirk. Ladies and gentlemen, may I present the winners of the 74th Annual Hunger Games. We are the man in black. I'm the doctor, by the way. What's your name? Rose. Nice to meet you, Rose. Run for your life. My name is Optimus Prime. I am the future of war. Resistance is futile. Yes, a Jedi strength flows from the Force, but beware of the dark side. It's got a nice ring to it. I mean, it's not technically accurate. It's a gold titanium alloy. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. This is uh, Reach Cold, and you're listening to Tracks and Sci-Fi. Hello, everybody. This is Mark Daniels from the Great Pacific Northwest, and you are listening to Treks in Sci-Fi. This is episode 869 for Sunday, July 17th, 2022. I'm back this week with some more classic science fiction. Today, I'm going to look at an episode of The Outer Limits. The episode is Soldier, starring Lloyd Nolan, Michael Ansara, and Tim O'Connor. Before I get into today's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me this opportunity to share with all of you some more classic science fiction. I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoy it. With that said, sit back, relax, and enjoy the rest of the podcast. I'll be back after the control voice with some episode information, and then we'll get into today's episode. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. If we wish to make it louder, we will bring up the volume. If we wish to make it softer, we will tune it to a whisper. We will control the horizontal. We will control the vertical. We can roll the image, make it flutter. We can change the focus to a soft blur or sharpen it to crystal clarity. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. We repeat, there is nothing wrong with your television set. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind to the outer limits. Soldier is the first episode of the second season of The Outer Limits. It was directed by Gerd Oswald. Uh, The screenplay was written by Harlan Ellison. This was the first of two episodes written by him, the other being Demon with the Glass Hand. It was loosely based on Ellison's 1957 short story, Soldier from Tomorrow. This episode stars Lloyd Nolan, 
Michael and Sarah, and Tim O'Connor. Soldier premiered September 19, 1964. The first clip I'm going to play today is the opening narration. Night comes too soon on the battlefield. For some men it comes permanently, their eyes never open to the light of day. But for this man, fighting this war, there is never total darkness. The spidery beams of light in the sky are the descendants of the modern laser beam. Heat rays that sear through tungsten steel and flesh as though they were cheesecloth. And this soldier must go against those weapons. His name is Quarlo, and he is a foot soldier, the ultimate infantryman. Trained from birth by the state, he has never known love, or closeness, or warmth. He is geared for only one purpose, to kill the enemy. And the enemy waits for him. Today's episode opens in the distant future. We have two soldiers seeking each other on a battlefield. Random energy rays strike both soldiers at the same time and hurls them both into a time matrix. While one of the soldiers is trapped in the time matrix, the other soldier materializes in an alley in an American city. The, so- the soldier encounters the police and is soon captured. The next clip I'm going to play is the introduction of two of the main characters, Pete Tanner and Tom Kagan. They've been assigned by the government to interrogate the prisoner. We'll find them outside, waiting outside a mental health hospital waiting for the arrival of the prisoner. Tanner, I'm Tom Kagan. I was sent over by the local office of the Bureau. I'm a philologist. Philologist? Yes, that's right. A language expert. I read your report. It seems that the man is talking some strange sort of dialect. They decided that I was the man to unravel it for you. You gotta be kidding. Right? You're putting me on, huh? Now, just what does that mean? Well, I'll tell you what that means, friend. Any moment now, something is going to be arriving that is guaranteed to stand your hair on end. It took six beefy men to put him into the two straitjackets he's wearing, and they sent down a philologist. Well, I do know a little karate. Oh, say, Kagan, you're a real knee slapper. strong enough. No, I don't think it did. In the next clip, Tanner and Kagan are observing the prisoner who has been placed in a padded cell. What makes him take off like that? It's the elevator. You'd better have them shut it off. What for? Sharp sounds drive him wild. Apparently his hearing is on a much more sensitive threshold than ours. You know that helmet you showed me? It had built-in sound baffles to deaden outside noises. So we'll give him back the helmet. No, I wouldn't do that if I were you. What I'm going to do? Well, that's the point. I don't know. Well, <laughs> glad to see you have some doubts. Mm-hmm. Want to stick it Thanks. No, those scars. 
Radiation burns, I'd say, but then you can't tell. That's outside my field. Radiation, all right. Medical Institute had them for five days. But it's outside their field, too. Whatever caused those burns, we haven't seen anything like it around here. Oh, he's shouting something. Hit that switch. I cut it. It's the same speech over and over. It's all he ever says. There is something familiar about it, but I, I can't place the idiom. Well, have you been able to make anything out of the tapes? Uh, random sounds, mostly. Anger, frenzy. Few word groupings that I can't decipher. Now, taking tapes of his mumblings doesn't help me. I've got to go down in there with him. Oh, now, wait just a second, friend. You lost your mind? That's not some ordinary psycho down there. That's the most dangerous piece of equipment I've ever seen. He'll take you and tear along the dotted line. That man is something that we have never seen before. He's from somewhere or some when that's completely outside our knowledge. He's a walking challenge. He's a walking bomb. Do I get the permission? Not a chance. Well, can I try to persuade you logically? In the next clip, Kagan has been working with the prisoner and has found out what he's been saying. He's been saying his name, rank, and serial letters which is what any soldier would reveal if captured by the enemy. Well? Well, what? Seven days and you ask me, well, what? He's a soldier. Any more late bulletins? I spent three years in the Rangers, Kagan. I know a soldier when I see one. No, I mean he is really a soldier. There's nothing about him that's not a soldier. He's the perfect ultimate infantry man. I don't think he knows anything else. What makes you think that? You know that gibberish he's been spelling? Which is? It's English. English? Ah, come on, Kagan. The guy's obviously a foreigner of some kind. It's wrong word, not foreigner. Try alien. Alien? From another planet? Now, wait a minute. You're rushing me. Well, the department wants facts. They got men lined up just waiting for a crack at him. Sociologists, philosophers, physicists. They feel you've had them long enough. All right. You tell them not to press me. You tell him I'm just beginning to break through. But he has to trust me implicitly first. Just one slip and we lose the whole game. Hey, hey, hey. Take it easy, Tom. Well, I guess I'm just pushed. It's like trying to hold on to fog. One moment you think you've got it, then the next moment it's gone. That's a very strange and peculiar item we have down there, but it is not a stupid one. Okay. I'll do the best I can to run interference for you. Oh, thanks. I just wish you could give me something. All right, I'll give you something. 
Do you want to know what he's saying over and over again without change? He's saying my name is Qualo Clobrigny. Private. R-M-E-N-T-N-D-O. His name, his rank, and his serial letters. In the next clip, Kagan has made a breakthrough. Kagan has found out that Qualo is from Earth, but 1,800 years in the future. Oh, Tom, this weapon is incredible. It has no power source, none at all. It's inexhaustible. I could fire it steadily for a month, and its power wouldn't decrease by one kilowatt. Yeah, Listen, look at this. Paul. This is all that's left of a four-foot-square solid steel bulkhead. You know, we took this thing apart. We disassembled every piece, and it has only three moving parts in it. We even tried leaving out half a dozen pieces, and it still works. Now, we don't know how. We haven't the slightest idea. Please, Paul. Now, what's so important? I broke through this morning. I think we talked. You think you talked? He's from the future, Paul. But how? Well, he doesn't really know. In his time, they fight their wars with beams of force, laser lights. Now, somehow, he got caught between two of them, and the next thing he knew... He was here, in the present. No, correction. He was here in the past, his past, our present. Well, did he tell you all this? Only fragments of it. I had to piece it together and then draw my own conclusions from most of it. He was evidently attacking someone he keeps calling the enemy in capital letters. And it is English he's speaking. No, not really, not exactly. It's, it's what I thought. It's gutter English, vastly speeded up and filled with slang of his time. Well, how did you get all that out of it? I wasn't exactly certain that he was from this planet. So, see, this is our galaxy. These stars here. This is our sun. Light up above. Now here, one, two, three. Third from the sun is the Earth. Here. Here, the Earth. Here, us, this dot. Now, Coralo, which one is yours? Which star, which planet? Oh, no, that's... That's the Earth. I told you. Which one is yours? is our galaxy and yet it wasn't exactly our galaxy that is not the way it is today i took that drawing to a friend of mine at the naval observatory it took him hours to plot it correctly well what was it the position the stars of our galaxy will be in 1800 years from now in the next clip 
Kagan persuades Tanner to let Qualo come home and live with his family. Ah. How does it feel to be dribbled like a basketball? It was my fault. It was literally the first time that anybody had ever touched him in his life. Five weeks. And what have you got to show for it? Nothing but a set of staved-in ribs and one beautiful headache from having your skull bounced off a wall. I taught him to speak our language. And so as I've noticed, every third word is gibberish. It is not gibberish. It's common usage from his time. And did you ever stop to think how, how valuable even those clues are in our future? You tell your superiors that given enough time, I'll establish absolute communication for them. Well, that's it. Do us both a favor. Try not to let him bounce you around like a ping-pong ball. You got a requisition tape, and that's a nuisance. Tom, we can't let you back in there with him. Just look at his eyes. The hate. You can see he's born to be a killer. Yes, that's the point. He was born to be a killer. He was trained to be a killer. And if he hadn't found his way into our time, he'd die a killer. But Paul, he doesn't hate. He doesn't understand hate. Or love. Or compassion. And it's not your job to teach him what they mean. They want you to decipher his language. And I'm not able to do that under these conditions. Paul, I, I want you to release him. I mean it. I want you to release him to me. I want him to live in my house for a time under absolutely normal conditions. Your house? Oh, now, come oh, on. He hasn't done anything to justify his being penned up like a criminal. The old newsman only fainted. Carlo was simply defending himself in a strange situation when he fired at the police car. We can't turn him loose, ready to go off at any moment. I tell you, he can adapt. He's quick. He can fit in. Tom, this is lunacy. It's no more lunacy than what they're trying to do. Now, I warn you, he'll fight you. He'll close up like a clam. Not my decision to make. I mean, the Bureau is getting static. A top secret like that is too hot to leave lying around. They want him boxed in permanently. Oh. Let me have him just for one month. One more month, that's all I'm asking. Now, I'm sure he'll show so much progress during that time that they'll be forced to reconsider. Just one month, Paul, please. What about your family? How are they going to like the idea of a potential killer in the same house with them? Well, I, I've already talked with them. And? Well... Abby isn't sure, but she's willing to go along, and both the kids are fascinated. I think that soldier is playing you for a sucker, Tom. He's a crafty, dangerous animal, and he's got you working for him. Don't forget, even in the future, a captured prisoner of war's first obligation is to escape. But you'll do it. Oh, I'll talk to the chief, but that's all I guarantee. Ah, that's good. Here. Have a stick of gum. In the next clip, Kagan brings Qualo home to meet his family. Come on, Qualo. Come on in. Qualo, this is my wife, Abby. Uh, my daughter, Tony, and Lauren is the 
Is it? CO. Quello Club with me fight. R-M-E-N-T-N-D-O reporting. Cat. Remember the book? What did you want from that cat, Carla? Nothing same. Your cats are different where you come from? Different. See your prowler think speak. I, I don't understand. The, the commanding officer uses cats? On patrol. Troopers, cats tied together by think speak. Cats do prowl, spot the enemy. Troopers jump. Oh. I think what he means is that somehow, by some... some agency that we don't even suspect, wars in the future are fought with men and animals. Cats are used for reconnaissance. And by telepathy, they relay their messages. And, and he thought he could get in touch with his commanding officer by talking through Macbeth. Yeah, well, it makes sense, doesn't it? Just think what a patrol prowler or a silent cat would make. No, Quarlow, it isn't that way here. Macbeth is just a cat. In the next clip, Quarlow tells Kagan that he was born in a hatchery and raised by the state to be a soldier. Nothing's here like war zone. Well, we'll try to make things pleasant for you here, Carl. No, 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 no. It's all right, Carlo. Why does she touch you? There is enemy and not enemy. Which is she? Wife. Um, family unit. Female CO. Uh, mother. Like your mother. Mother? My mother? You do have a mother, don't you? Brigney, Crash Hatchery 559. I am the state. The state is all. Yes. Uh, Lauren, why don't you show Quarlow to his room? Come on. Cresh is a day nursery. It's a foundling hospital. He is a product of artificial birth. He has no real parents. He was born and raised in a hatchery just like an egg. And not about the state. The state is all his mother, his father, everything. How pathetic. Can we help him? He seems so lost and confused, and you said yourself he's capable of... anything. Abby, I know we can help him. But... Are you sure, Tom? Tony... and Lauren upstairs with him alone? I know. I know it's a... it's a terrible risk. But we can help him, and we must. 
In the next clip, Qualo has left the Kagan home, broken into a gun shop, and is now armed. Tanner speaking. Oh, Paul, I was wondering if... Now look, Tom, will you stop chewing my ear, will you? I haven't any control over what they're doing. But you didn't fight them. I did fight them, if you must know. I spent two weeks batting my brains against the wall while you were out there playing ABCs with King Kong. It won't work, Paul. It's taken almost constant contact for him to accept me as not enemy. Now, you throw him in with a bunch of scholars and he'll tense up on you. You've got to... God, God, God. I don't got to do anything but pick up that big, ugly piece of furniture and take him where my bosses tell me to take him. But it, he, he's at ease here. He's under control. What do you mean he's under control? You mean he hasn't run amok yet? You mean... Uh, wait a minute. Car there? Right away. It was under control, right? Have you checked under his bed lately? Well, but uh, what? The bomb has finally exploded. He broke into that gun shop on Essex Boulevard. He's armed now. And that ends this discussion. Barry, sir. Are you Mr. Tanner from the Bureau? Right. What's the story here? Well, he broke in through the front window. We've got six cars parked out there, so we can't escape that way. So he'd have to come out through the alleyway here, doesn't he? Already tried it, sir. Went right through that steel door like it wasn't there. That's when my men opened fire and he ducked back inside. Is he armed now? Yes, sir. He's got a big 30 6 Swedish hunting rifle. From the way he was packing it, I'm sure he knows how to use it. Okay. We're going to have to flush him out. Tear gas, sir? No, I think noise will do it. I'll tell you when, and you start up the sirens of all the cars at once. Then we'll send in a group from the front and the rear and catch them in between. Right. Now listen, Paul. No, don't even ask. The answer is no before you start. You are not empowered to kill him, and that's what you're going to have to do if you attack him. But I'll get the authority then. Oh, don't be foolish. By the time you got through to the Bureau, I could have him out of there. He trusts me. At least he'll listen to me. Listening to you has brought this all about town. Now, I've had it. Paul, he doesn't know. He's in a strange land. He doesn't know anything except his gun. Any gun. Yeah, and he's got one now. Hmm. If only I'd taken him in when I wanted to. That's just it. He's afraid of you. He's afraid of everybody except me. To him, you are the enemy. You want to make him a prisoner, don't you understand? All right, Tom. Good. One more time. I'll sit and watch one more time. But whatever happens, it's all finished tonight. Barlow. It's Kagan. I want to talk to you. Barlow. I'm not enemy. Don't attack. Meanwhile, across town, the other soldier that was trapped in the time matrix has fully materialized and is on the hunt for Qualo. In the next clip, Kagan goes to the gun shop to persuade Qualo to come back to the Kagan home. Meanwhile, Tanner calls Kagan's wife, Abby, and asks for her help to capture Qualo. Qualo, it's Kagan. I want to talk to you. Qualo, I'm not enemy. Don't attack. Barlow, why did you do this? 
You tell me, you talk to me. Trooper needs a gun. Oh, I see. Well, now, will you come home with me? Can I take you back? I'll kill you. Then they'll have to kill you, Coelho. Troopers die. Yes, but there's no need for it. It is my way, the only way I know. Stay away from me. No, Coelho. I'm coming in. I'll kill you! Mrs. Kagan, this is Paul Tanner. Now listen carefully, I haven't time to repeat. Quarlow broke into a gun shop tonight. Now Tom managed to talk him out of the shop. And they're on their way back to your house now. But he's armed. He refused to leave the shop unless he could keep the gun. Here? They're coming here? Now listen. They'll be there in a few minutes. When they get there, Tom is going to try and talk the gun away from Quarlow. When he does, the moment Tom gets the gun, you take the phone off the hook. Off the hook? But I don't... I've got the line jammed open. The moment you take the phone off the hook, we'll know that Tom has the gun. I know where the calls can get through. We're only two minutes away. Any closer than the soldier might suspect. But we'll move in and grab him the moment you take the phone off the hook. In this last clip, Quarlow, Kagan, get to the Kagan house, and Quarlow finally surrenders the gun. Kagan tries to explain to Quarlow that he's going to be taken to another location for questioning. Stop! Abby, kids, what are you doing up at this time of night? Tom. Let them go. Let them go to the kitchen. Please. Don't. Don't frighten them, Quarlo. Mixed peeping. I don't grasp all that's happening. They want to call the enemy. Stop. You'll all stop. Give me the gun, Quarlo. Trooper never gives up a gun. That's another time and another place. You can't do it that way here. We're trying to help you. We want to keep them from hurting you. But first, you'll have to give me that gun. I'll kill you. Oh, come on, Qualo. Don't be drum-dumb. You know Dad isn't your enemy. You wouldn't kill him. I... I don't... You, you give me the gun, Quarlow. I promise you, nothing will happen. I'll put it where you can get it any time you want it. You shouldn't have run away like that, Quarlow. It helps them. Help? Who? Oh, some people that want to have you move to another place. I was sure I could have persuaded them to leave you here, but now it... Who? What people? Well, some men who make our decisions for the rest of us because we let them. C.O.? Something like that. They've decided they want to ask you questions. P-O-W, I peeped that would happen. I knew you troops would jump. No, it's not a prisoner of war camp. Nothing like that. It's a... it's a... Liar! It wasn't my idea. I tried to keep them from doing it. But these people that... 
Where I come from, it's true. It's right. No two ways. Only us and them, the enemy. We know who they are. They know us. No, it's better here, Carlo. If you could only understand, if you could only grasp. In my world, we don't grasp these love, hate, all of them. We never know, so we don't want. You are not enemy, so I stay here. But the others, the ones who put hands on me. In the last scene, the other soldier tracks Quarlo down to the Kagan home. In a final hand-to-hand battle, the soldiers kill each other. And that's the end of the episode. From the darkest of all pits, the soul of man, come the darkest questions. Did the soldier finally come to care for those he protected? Or was it just his instinct to kill? Questions from the dark pit, but no answers, for answers lie in the future. Is it a future in which men are machines born to kill? Or is there time for us? Time, all the time in the world, but is that enough? Now it's time for some episode trivia. Quarlo's war helmet would later be reused as the helmet wore by Alien Mork in Mork and Mindy. The alley where Quarlo first appeared would be let used three years later in a Star Trek the original episode, City on the Edge of Forever. Vic Perrin, who is the control voice for all the Outer Limits, supplied his voice for Quarlo's war helmet, while the voice of the enemy's war helmet is supplied by Tim O'Connor. Along with the Outer Limits' demon with the glass hand, Soldier is one of two episodes penned by Harlan Ellison that allegedly formed the basis of James Cameron's script, The Terminator. Ellison ended up suing the producers of The Terminator movie for copying his story of the two time-traveling soldiers sent in the past who continue their battle. And that's all I have for episode trivia. I did find an audio clip online about the uh, James Cameron and Harlan Ellison uh, lawsuit. I never knew that until researching for this movie. But I do recall watching The Terminator and seeing acknowledgement for Harlan Ellison. And I never knew why, but now I do. So I'm going to play that clip. It's a little long, but it'll expel everything out for you. James Cameron released the original Terminator back in 1984. We saw a glut of imitators, and sometimes even movies that were just straight-up rip-offs. What if we told you that the Terminator itself was a rip-off? Well, that would be a bit hyperbolic. But there is an interesting story there, and it all starts with a peculiar end credit. It's a very interesting credit, as it's not very specific. It's just a general, hey, here's an acknowledgement. We all know how the movie goes. A human soldier is sent from 2029 to 1984 to stop an almost indestructible cyborg sent from the same year, which has been programmed to execute a young woman whose unborn son is the key to humanity's future salvation. Understanding this whole Terminator controversy requires a brief primer on one of the most talented and most prolific authors in the field of various genre fiction, Harlan Ellison. I despise the audience. I despise the audience. When that was published in an interview with me last year, 
Uh, a writer named Tim Sullivan got so crazed behind it. I, you know, I barely met them. I, I knew him, I guess, I met him once. He wrote an entire essay about how dare I talk about my audience that way. My fans are, you know, and, and, there, and there are writers who do that. They suck up to their fans, you know. Oh, I love my fans, they're wonderful. Well, they may need that, I don't. I am an adversary to my fans. I hate the word fans, to my readers. I'm their adversary. I'm not there to make them feel good. I'm not there to win their approbation. I don't give a damn whether they love me. What I want is for the work to go at them and savage them. I want my work to come at them and attack them. I want my work to leave them with some with some feeling that they have been through an experience. That's what I want. The late Ellison's published works include more than 1,700 short stories, novels, screenplays, comic book scripts, teleplays, essays, and a wide range of criticism covering literature, film, television, and print media. Some of his best-known works include the 1967 Star Trek episode, The City on the Edge of Forever. Time has resumed its shape. All is as it was before. His A Boy and His Dog Cycle and his short stories, I Have No Mouth and I Must Scream, and repent, Harley Quinn, said the TikTok man. Ellison won numerous awards, including multiple Hugos, Nebulas, and Edgars. And yet, for all of his talent and accolades, Ellison is arguably equally well-known for his litigious trigger finger. I wish someone would have come from the future and warned me not to talk to you. That's my idea! You're stealing my idea! Sorry. This brings us back to The Terminator, which had certain situations, settings, and ideas that resonate pretty strongly in a teleplay Ellison penned 20 years before Cameron's film was released. Find the enemy. Kill. 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 Ellison's script was an episode of The Outer Limits, which, for those who don't know, was a primetime science fiction series, which was greenlit in the wake of the Twilight Zone success, which ran for two seasons from 1963 to 1965 on ABC. The story goes like this. Some years ago, uh, before Terminator came out, I began to hear from people, gee, there's this script that they're going to shoot that reads an awful like, like, your, uh, like your script for Soldier that you did on Outer Limits years ago. Now, Soldier had, of course, been available on video cassette for many years. Demon with a Glass Hand, for Outer Limits, had won all the awards, but Soldier was right there. Uh, in popularity. Soldier begins in a future post-apocalyptic battleground. Two men are fighting until they are caught up in some sort of time warp. One is sent back through time to present day. He is chased through alleys and city streets until he is caught by the police. And nobody believes the story. So we applied to uh, Hemdale Films uh, for a copy of the trip. And uh, they refused to let us see it. Now, the minute someone tells you you can't see something as innocuous script, particularly, I mean, this is my attorney asking, and it was not, you know, I'm clearly not some jamook off the street. I was, I was a writer with some, with some credentials. You begin, your antenna rise, and you, and you say, there's something going on here. Well, as an accredited film critic, I, in Hollywood, I see every film, and I get a, a screening pass to every film. Uh, we did not get one to Terminator. And when I called to inquire from Orion Films what schedule I would be allowed to, to go to, uh, they said, well, we'll get back to you, and they never did. But he eventually did make it into a screening, as Leonard Maltin remembers in his essay, Remembering Harlan Ellison. I will never, ever forget how I first met celebrated science fiction author Harlan Ellison. I was attending a morning showing of James Cameron's breakthrough movie, The Terminator, in 1984, and signing in with the publicist on duty. When Harlan heard me say my name, he approached me and offered a friendly hello. Then he told me why he was there. He had heard from reliable sources that the movie had taken key story ideas from his past work. 
specifically an episode of The Outer Limits called Demon with a Glass Hand. They programmed you to think you were a human with a surgically attached computer for a hand. But you are a robot. In Ellison's Demon with a Glass Hand, our main character learns that he is actually a robot from the future. After a series of events, he finds out that all the people on Earth, a thousand years in the future, were turned into electronic impulses and put into a thin piece of wire. At that point, we made uh, noises to Hemdale that we were, we really think we should sit down and talk about this. Almost instantly, almost instantly, a number of very interesting things happened. The first thing that happened was that the editors of Starlog magazine called me and said, we're getting a lot of heat all of a sudden from James Cameron and Gail Ann Hurd. And I said, on what grounds? Well, what had happened was they had interviewed Cameron prior to the film's release. And Cameron had been his usual, I, I've never met the man, but I gather that he has an ego that makes mine look minuscule by comparison. And that in the course of his interview, someone had said to him, where did you get the basic conception for Terminator? And his response was, oh, I ripped off a couple of Outer Limits segments. This sentiment was apparently repeated when a friend of Ellison's, writer Tracy Torme, visited the set of the film, and Cameron said that he'd ripped off a few of Ellison's short stories to make the script for the Terminator. Well, he had been on the set as they were shooting, and he, and he was talking to the Cameron, and he said, where'd you get the idea for this? And Cameron said to him, oh, I ripped off a couple of Ellison's short stories and a couple of Ellison's uh, 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 Outer Limits segments. I mean, he used my name. So we went to, uh, at this point, we went to Hemdale and Orion, and we said, uh, I'm afraid we got him with the smoke and gun. Now, do you want to do something about this, or do you want us to... To whip your ass in open court. I mean, perfectly happy to do it either way. Well, they settled. And they settled with uh, a substantial amount of money, not the kind of money I would have gotten had I gone to court. It was uh, sixty-five or $75,000, dollars 65 or $75,000, something like that, with an additional $5,000 to be paid to me after uh, a period of time that was stipulated in the, in the, in the contract agreement uh, if I did not speak. Of any of this. It's hard to deny that this whole dust-up is strangely compelling. Ellison certainly didn't own the idea of time-traveling soldiers, and if we think about art as appropriation, it seems like Terminator couldn't possibly be a rip-off of these two scripts. Even by Ellison's own admission, the problem wasn't the intellectual property, but rather the hubris. The other part of the contract agreement, which was very important, was that every copy of the film thereafter, whether on video cassette or laser disc, on cable TV or commercial TV, would say uh, the producers wish to acknowledge the work of Harlan Ellison. Uh, and I said to them, if Cameron had come to me before he did The Terminator and said, I really love Soldier, I got another take on it, do you mind if I work that field? I'd have said, with my blessings, you know, just at the end when you mentioned Coca-Cola for giving you, you know, free Cokes on the set, just mention and thanks to Harlan Ellison. That's, he'd have had it for nothing. And anyone can have it for nothing. Any of my work for nothing if they ask me and they say, I got a great idea here, you know, I'd really like to take off from this. Do you mind if I were? If they, if they acknowledge that that's where it came from, I don't want a dime of their money. I don't want a dime of their credit. All I want is equal 
time for creators. Whether this sentiment was true or not isn't super relevant, because we can't visit that alternate dimension. But it does give one pause on all sides of the issue. Say you've written a soon-to-be classic short story. You're super excited as it gets published somewhere notable. And then 20 years later, J.J. Abrams is making a big-budget movie, which contains an opening scene very similar to your short story. You might not take it so well. At the same time, if you were James Cameron, why wouldn't you have asked? Or perhaps all the smoking guns of Cameron saying the word ripoff were met flippantly, and he didn't even know what he was using as source material. Indeed, in the printed Starlog interview, Cameron gushes about having read a ton of sci-fi when he was a kid. It's very possible Cameron didn't have an encyclopedic knowledge of all the stuff he'd read when he and Gail Earnhardt Heard wrote The Terminator. Cameron commented on an issue at the 1991 T2 convention. Quote, for legal reasons, I'm not supposed to comment on that. But it was a real bum deal. I had nothing to do with it, and I disagree with it. In the 2009 book, The Futurist, Cameron vented some more on the issue. The director found Ellison's accusations of Terminator ripping him off to be baseless and opportunistic, and he wanted to fight the suit. Unfortunately, the studio didn't, deciding to settle things with Ellison out of court. They told Cameron that if he fought Ellison and lost, he'd be responsible for any monetary judgment. Not yet being a superstar director at that point, Cameron couldn't afford to take that chance and begrudgingly allowed the settlement to happen. The studio paid Ellison some cash and put the now infamous acknowledgement to the author on future prints of the Terminator. So, for a moment, let's get into some of the actual sustainable similarities between Soldier and the Terminator, broken down item by item. Number one. Both the Terminator and Soldier open with exposition describing a future full of warfare. Number two, both stories have characters travel in time to a circular visual effect. Number three, finally, both stories have the protagonist from the hellish future arrive in present day in an alley. And that's really all there is to it. In Soldier, the time traveler is sent back to an accident, and he spends the first part of the story in a mental hospital, and the later half living in the resident of a doctor who's trying to help him assimilate into a more peaceful world. Of course, Kyle Reese in The Terminator was sent back intentionally, and then identifies the woman he's supposed to protect from a cyborg. Similarities to the imagery and setup of The Terminator aside, Soldier is ultimately more of an anti-war screed, concerned with the idea of whether or not humanity can be bred out of a human. And if it can, whether it can be reintroduced. Funnily enough, these themes make its closest spiritual successor, Adam Wingard's The Guest, a film that's been called a thinly veiled Terminator reboot. That movie is great, by the way. You should check it out if you haven't already. If you brought money for all of them, I'll cut you a deal. You can take them all off my hands. No, I'm going to kill you. The same thing goes for Demon with a Glass Hand. Other than a robot going back in time, there's no direct similarity to the Terminator. All in all, it's clear that Cameron took the entire Outer Limits and Twilight Zone vibe and all the B-grade movies that had a touch of, well, something, and made it into the Terminator. The two Harlan Ellison episodes serve as a reminder of how many ideas are floating around in the universe and that they often boil down to how the characters try to make a connection with others. And needless to say, the Terminator more than stands on its own two feet as a story and as a classic movie. Now it's time for the Star Trek Connection. Everybody knows I'm a big Star Trek fan and I try to find a Star Trek Connection in every movie or TV show I watch. There are four Star Trek connections in today's movie. The first one being Michael and Sara. He was Carlo Clopegni in today's episode. He also played the Klingon Commander Kang in the Star Trek original series Day of the Dove. 
He would later reprise that role in the Deep Space Nine episodes, Blood Oath and the Voyage episode, Flashback. He was also Luxana Troy's husband in the Deep Space Nine episode, The Muse. Uh, Tim O'Connor. He was Pete Tanner in today's movie. He was also Ambassador Brime in the Star Trek The Next Generation fifth season episode, The Perfect Mate. And of course, Vic Perrin. He was the voice of the control, the control voice in every episode of The Outer Limits. He was also the Halkin leader council, council leader in the original series episode, Mirror Mirror. And he was also the voice of the Metrons in the arena and the voice of Nomad in the Changeling. And last but not least, of course, I have to mention Harlan Ellison. He wrote the screenplay in today's episode. He also wrote the screenplay for the original series episode, City on the Edge Forever. And that's all I have for movie trivia. Now, here are my comments about today's episode. I watched the 2003 DVD set from MGM Home Entertainment. The picture and sound quality were really good. I've always liked the look of The Outer Limits. It reminds me a lot of the film noir movies of the 1940s and 50s, how they use light and, lights, light and shadows. I really like that look. Uh, the story story was excellent. Can't get any better than that. I'm a little partial to time travel stories, but yeah, this is a really good story. As far as the acting, I think all three of the main actors did a great job. Lloyd Nolan, Tim O'Connor, and Michael Asar, you all get an A-plus for today. Uh, I, the one thing I liked about Michael Ansara's, uh character was his uh, future English. You know, the I peep you. I like that. And the idea of having cats working with soldiers was interesting because now we have dogs that work with soldiers, but cats, cats are quieter than dogs. So that would be interesting. Um, The scene where Kagan tells he comes from a hatchery, that reminded me a lot of clone troopers in Star Wars. So maybe Quarlo is a clone or maybe he's not, but who knows? I thought that was a good tie-in. Uh, another thing I like about the Twilight episode, this, I mean, excuse me, I said Twilight Zone, excuse me, Outer Limits episode, was the closing narration. And if you listen to it, it it's a good question. Did Quarlo fight to protect the Kagan family from the enemy, or was that part of his programming? I'd like to think it, he was, uh, he prevented the family and was protecting the family. I'd like to think that, but he was born and raised by the state to be, a soldier. So maybe his natural, what am I trying to say? His It's it's natural for him to be a killer. That's it. And, and didn't give a thought about the Kagan family. But that's one thing I always like about the uh, Outer Limits, that, that closing narration is always a pretty cool question to make you think. Uh, soldier is one of my favorite episodes of the Outer Limits. It's up there with uh, Demon with the Glass Hand and Architects of Fear. Those are my favorite ones. I would recommend this episode to all science fiction fans. This is a great episode from a great series. It's worth watching. On a scale from 1 to 10, I'll give Soldier a solid 7.5 out of 10. It's no demon with the glass hand or architects of fear, but it's still a good movie. I mean, a good TV episode. Um, And those are my comments about the Outer Limits episode, Soldier. That's it for today's podcast. Before I wrap up today's podcast, I want to thank Rico for giving me another opportunity to share with all of you some more classic science fiction. 
I also want to thank everyone who took the time to listen to me today. I hope you enjoyed it. Rico will be back in a couple weeks with a video cast on his trip to San Diego Comic-Con. That should be interesting. I'll be back soon with some more classic science fiction. Until then, everyone take care. This is M5, signing off. We now return control of your television set to you. Until next week at this same time, when the control voice will take you to the outer limits. Until next time, live long and prosper. Tricks in silence. End of transmission.